Welcome to the Power Your Life radio show with host and success doc, Joanne White. Author, speaker, certified coach, and energy master, Doc White gets to the heart of what matters most. She features guests and experts to help you consciously create more success, health, and wellness in every area of your life, work, and relationships. They'll share their success stories, wisdom, and know-how to help you shine more light onto your day and into your life. Power your life right now. Here's Joanne White. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us on Power Your Life. I'm Joanne White. And it seems so fitting to have my first guest today, Eustacia Cutler, talking about the past, present, and the future of autism because it's really been a challenge for many families, and we're going to delve into that. And it's important to empower families and the children that they serve, their children, to help them negotiate the world of language, the world of symbology, and so much more, the world of socialization. Eustacia Cutler is an internationally recognized keynote speaker on autism and its relationship with brain plasticity. Her research on autism and on other disabilities created the scripts for two WGBH television documentaries, The Disquieted and The Innocents, Eustacia is also the mother of fame, Dr. Temple Grandin, and the author of A Thorn in My Pocket, which describes raising Temple in the conservative 1950s. Eustacia offers valuable and insightful information for parents, educators, and professionals about the rapidly emerging bio-neurological study of brain plasticity and how current research into the neural nature of consciousness is pointing toward insightful possibilities of change. Eustacia, thank you so much for being on Power Your Life. How are you? Well, I'm fine, Joanne, and what a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. And I'm my, so it's certainly you. my pleasure, and we have so much to cover, so we're just going to jump we're, right into it. We're and we're going to talk. Yes, you talk. <laughs> we're we're going to talk a little bit about just what's so different in terms of raising a child with autism. Your experience, obviously, was in the 1950s, and what parents are going through now that makes it even more difficult. So what are your observations and, and, and your knowledge? and share with parents and professionals about that. Well, you're so right. Uh, There were certain things that were a lot easier then. For one, the neighborhood and the family and the school were all much more connected to each other, and all of them working more or less on the same team. It It was really shared concern and shared expertise when it came to school, and we don't have quite that set up now. We have the professionalizing of autism. And that has got great advantages, but it also makes parents feel inadequate. And therefore, they defer to the professional. And often the professional is trying to follow a precise pattern. And autism, as you know all too well, it doesn't follow a precise pattern. There are no exact answers, and I keep saying that to parents. I keep telling them there are only choices, and choices can be changed, 
and you will change them, and you will be changed by them. Which well, is certainly what your experience is. Now, when you talk about well, school and the community and the families coming together, it was probably because of the way you had talked about forming communities and the just the nature of of how everybody grew up with one another and there was close connections and so that there was a lot of support. Now here you're talking about so much more isolation for families. They have organizations that support them, but like you said, in terms of school, um, oftentimes there is that sense of isolation and, and differentiation. Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, my, you're hitting on the, really at the heart of the subject. Uh, for starters, the simple question is, if we want to integrate these children into the neighborhood, is it a help to put them into special classes? They need to be with everybody else. And Temple at five was included in the, there was a little neighborhood school where all the children went, and she was part of that group. And, yes, she had trouble at times. She uh, and the teacher would, when there were days when Temple couldn't manage, she'd say, can I send her home? I said, of course, just give me a call and I'll come and get her. She used those times to explain to the other children what Temple's problem was. It put the children very much on Temple's side, and they, they feel to this day that they had a hand in raising Temple, and in truth, they did. Uh, I think what's, that doesn't exist today in that same fashion. And to add to it, we had a simpler culture. We all lived pretty much the same lives. It was in New England, and New England is, is conservative and Puritan, and we all lived the conservative Puritan life. But today we have a culture that's a combination of complicated and shallow, it's also chaotic and changing at faster than we can figure out each day. And I think often, Joanne, would I be able to raise Temple today in that setup? I don't really know. You I know, that, that's, that's the difficulty, too, because... Where do parents turn? They have support groups. They have one another. They have, you know, they have your foundations like you where they're learning, you know, you and Temple where they're learning about information. But often they, like you said very early on, they are deferring to the professionals. When you and I had a conversation the other day and both agree that the professionals need to defer to the parents a little bit more and understand the nature of what families go through and also understand more of the nature of autism. Would you like to share a little bit of that? Because I think that's so important. And, I've, you know, I've been on the side of the profession and see oftentimes when I'll go into school to advocate for a child with autism or a child on the spectrum whereby... Professionals seem to think that they know and they have all the answers. Well, they they don't know uh, several things. They 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 have a set of rules because that's the way we we teach, and I understand the nature of that form of teaching. But you are dealing with something with a with a disorder that 
isn't orderly. And it isn't so much a disorder as it is that there are certain gaps in uh, autistic thinking. And we're not showing these to professionals or even to the parents and even to the neighborhood. And I, I'd love to go into some of those steps if we've got time to. That I think of all the points I would like people, anybody listening, to pick up on are these points. The first one, and, and the story I always tell, is about my youngest grandson. I have five grandsons, and they're now all in their 20s. But this was the youngest one, Nicholas, and he was still a baby in a high chair, and he hadn't yet begun to talk. But the first words his grandmother heard him say were not mama, dada, but Oreo. He pointed to the cookie jar, and he <laughs> looked at us, and he said, Oreo. Now, I knew, first step, that he understood what an Oreo was. What's the nature of an Oreo? It's something you eat. And that first step is called conceptual thinking. And it's a step that most of those on the autism spectrum are really lacking. They don't understand the idea of something. You can say to a child, point to the shovel, and he can point to it. But if you say to him, point to the thing you dig with, he's lost. Do you see what I'm saying? It's Definitely. He doesn't understand what a shovel is for. Nicholas understood, his neurology understood, what a cookie is for. Now, so if that's... that's well, let, me, let me go through inter- these steps and then okay. see if we can put them together because somebody may want to question these things. This, this is what I find people are lacking more than anything else. The second step was he understood where he was. He was sitting in his little high chair where he got things to eat. And he knew that if he wanted a cookie, he better ask for it fast before somebody took him out of that high chair. That's context. He knows where he is. Now, the third step is he looked at us and he pointed to the cookie jar. That means he already understood we had a different mind from his mind, and he'd get the idea of a cookie from his mind into our mind. He did that by looking at us and pointing to the cookie jar, and that's called shared information. And the other step it was is called executive function. That means Nicholas could put it all together and act on it. Now, these all seem like spontaneous social uh, steps. They're not. They're neurological. And this baby had to, those circuits in his brain had matured before he could talk. We keep thinking talk is what's important. The talk comes after these steps are there, and the steps often are not there. I think... If parents understood that better, if if the the 
faculties who are teaching at whatever stage the child is at understood that better because it goes all the way on up through uh, high school through job hunting. We need to have those points established more clearly and we will it will determine how we behave we you see we're not we're looking at autism as they as though they were something separate from us we're social creatures we are incomplete without each other so we're not looking at how we are involved in these steps do you see do you hear what i'm saying Definitely. So if someone with autism, a child with autism, doesn't have that ability with shared information, the executive function, the contextual information and conceptual information, what do we need to do as parents and as professionals to help them understand language? Understand. Now I'm asking you a big question, so however oh, that, you want to answer <laughs> and understand socialization and and the meaning of not only relationships but the meaning of actions and and things. Well, you see, it's different with each child. They've got to compensate. They, in the same way that somebody who is blind has got to have a cane. We don't say to them, "Watch a step." We give them a cane. If they're deaf, we don't say, "Listen to me." We teach them sign language. These are compensations. And I think, I think what's always interested me is Temple's compensation because it's worked very well for her. She says, well, I don't go for this flighty idea stuff. I work from the ground up. It's not con- concepts. It's, uh, what does she call them, categories. She, what she literally does, and she has a superb memory, she and good visual memory. She remembers everything she's ever done. And as she calls them, they, she calls them her videos. When I meet a new situation, she says, I take out my videos and I use the one that fits the situation best. And it works amazingly well. I should say partly because she's got a superb memory and she's smart. She can put it all together. Now, the one gap in there is it only works with the past. You, she can only operate in terms of what has already happened. And the problem here is, and it's easier to define the problem than to figure out how you're going to help it. But my contention is until we put the problem out on the table, we can't, we can't help at all. And we're not always putting it clearly on the table. Right. Uh, so Temp relies on her internal videos and her memory to be able to access yes. that information in present and future situations. And what you're saying is if, if there's nothing in the past to give her that in future. Right. So she, she's kind of lost. And she right. gets, yes, she gets lost. And this is, once we understand that, we accept the loss. We don't, we understand that it's not personal. It's not that they're not trying to understand. They can't understand. It's like saying to the blind person, pay attention, watch a step. Uh, We need, there's no point trying to 
explain it to them as I'm trying to explain it to you. Right. But they cannot they cannot take it in. They've got to compensate. And compensation works pretty well. It's it it it, it brings it's them comp- into life. Isn't compensation different though for each child because they're, yes. they're you know each yes. Absolutely. So not every Absolutely not every right. They're not okay, all going not to ev- do it this way. The typical right. example is echolalia, where we think, what is echolalia? Well, Temple's working visually, and echo- somebody who has echolalia is working orally. They hear, they remember, and they can imitate precisely, but it, they cannot coordinate it into a response to what it is we've asked. In other words, if I say, what's your name? The echolaliac says, what's your name? He can't say, my name is John. He, right, he not initially. He can't put it together and act on it. But Until once you we see keep- that, then you know he's not being rude. He's not being impudent. He it is... He's desperately trying to connect. How has the Internet impacted what's going on with with autism and also the, the whole cultural shift in, in how we handle the challenges today? Uh, it's very, very difficult, and it's changing rapidly. I think part of what's hard on... We're trying to bring children on the autism spectrum into the world with us. And the danger is they slide into correspondence with somebody who's, what, on the other side of the world somewhere? And it feels like their interpretation of friendship. It's not really. And they may be sitting beside somebody. And... That's a difficult step to get through, and I think the step has to happen very young. Uh, how to become part of an activity is a very young step. I think of Elaine Hall in Los Angeles, who's very good at teaching this. I watched her with four-year-olds. What she did, she sat them around in a circle, and then she said, now we'll all and holding hands. They all had to hold hands. Now mm-hmm. we'll all raise our hands together. You can't do this if everybody doesn't do it. So if you're right. autistic, you're, holding you're going to have hand. to do what each one on either side of you is doing. And then she developed it into more complicated rituals of where they had to, there were two circles holding hands and how they had to get under one set of arms and over the other one weaving them in between each other, which was to get them to understand a more complicated relationship. Um, I, I was very much impressed. I thought she's dealing with that, making that social connection and trying to get that established with them in the beginning artificially, but I'm not sure it doesn't after a while become a neurological response. It becomes an automatic response, and that's very valuable. And the Internet is not 
connecting in the same way. And right. It there's also affect. games. They get and a lot of they all do whatever children are. They get into the games. They have no meaning. We and and this is everywhere. I I live here in an apartment house in New York City, and I get onto the elevator, and I'm amazed. You, all the young people on that elevator are on a, a cell phone. Right. They're tapping away <laughs> at their smartphone. They don't. Sometimes I can get them to say good morning. Sometimes I can't. Sometimes they just look at me as though I were odd. They're not in the present moment. It's not just in the elevator. Go into a restaurant, and instead of people interacting with one another, they're on their phones and and checking also. I mean, I find it rude, really. Doesn't it amaze you? It It, does. It's so disconnected. So now we have children who are having a struggle with connection, and they have the wrong lesson sitting in front of them. (laughs) Right. And I'm for pushing the right lessons at a very young age. See, Temple was couldn't talk. And at two, I had taken her to Children's Hospital in Boston. And the doctor said, well, I think she's, after he'd done some tests, and yes, she was autistic. But he said, I think she's going to talk, but let's speed up the process. And he told me who to go to, to for who would teach Temple how to speak. And Temple was with Mrs. Reynolds for three years. It took her till she was nearly five before she could talk. And as we all know, she hasn't stopped talking ever since. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it took her that long. And Mrs. Reynolds also taught her. You see, there were others in the class. So she got her one-on-one attention with Mrs. Reynolds. Then she had to go sit down in her little chair and wait or watch while other children have their time with Mrs. Reynolds. She could crayon, she could look out the window, she could go to sleep, or she could watch. But she had to be part of the communal activity. And Mrs. Reynolds also taught her that at two. All that points to the fact I think we have to start much younger than we're starting. And that can be established so Temple wanted to be social beach, to be a social creature. She wanted to, that, and by being included by in in the mainstream in the little school in kindergarten at five when she could talk, she wanted to be part of that group, and she said very shortly afterwards, "I have to play the games by the other kids' rules, or they won't let me play with them." She wanted that. So she really learned that by being engaged and being involved and having a teacher like Mrs. Reynolds who who really orchestrated that beautifully for not just for her but for the the rest of the kids. Why are we not doing more with early intervention and and I don't know why. I I think sometimes because parents are in denial, they hope things will change. And they don't change. Sometimes it's a local doctor who says, oh, well, they're just slow developing. Uh, you see, Temple's behavior was was very odd. She not only didn't talk, but she didn't want to know that she had this strange eye look in her eye from the time she was a little baby 
I could not get her to look at me. I couldn't get her to play peekaboo. These things are quite usual. She didn't want to be picked up and played with. She didn't want to be touched, for one thing. And then she got involved with, she would do this wild spitting, and then she'd go into gales of unnatural laughter. And then, as many of these children do, she pulled the contents of her diaper out and smeared it all over the wallpaper and played with it. She was happier with her own spit and feces. And that was what sent me to the doctor at two. I thought, this, this is, this is very odd, very unusual. Right. And right. I, so at least her symptoms were so unusual that there was no way for me to deny. We're just going to go to Children's Hospital. And I had heard about Children's Hospital. They had a clinic called the Judge Baker Guidance Clinic, a clinic that must have been endowed by a judge named Baker who mm-hmm. wanted these children to be studied and helped uh, before they turned up in court facing him. And the term in those days was stubborn child. That was the legal court term. That's and I've horrible. Always, yes, it is. And it was on the books. Just it's like, an old term left over from the 19th century. Right. And just like years ago, and I remember this when I was, was teaching children with autism and opened up that program, they were telling parents that many of these children would be best suited in institutions, which is not true, and that the reason that these children had autism was because of a very cold, uncaring mother. And I keep thinking, uh-huh. can you imagine what that did to parents? Yes, I who- can. And I was lucky. You see, that's Bettelheim. He was, he was Bruno Bettelheim, uh, who was famous and had been made famous by television. Right. So we all listened to him. Except I didn't. And, and I think what's, here's where culture, again, plays in. See, Dr. Carruthers, who was Temple's doctor at Children's Hospital, I don't think he followed Bettelheim. Bettelheim, you see, was Freudian, and that came out of the Freudian feeling that something has gone terribly wrong in the infant childhood. Right. And that's what this person is suffering from. Uh, but New Englanders don't are wary of Freud. They're Puritans. Again, they, they, um, we don't lie down on couches and tell people our troubles. We stand up <laughs> and we face them. <laughs> and, I love it. <laughs> that's so New England. And, mm-hmm. and also, New England is strong on education. There are more schools in New England than in, per acre than anywhere else. And so his response was, we will, we will work on education. We will work on helping her learn to talk. And that Which saved me from it? the trap of Bettelheim and saved right. and that was Right, that was wonderful because you're working on, on some really important aspects of what a child needs rather than philosophizing a little bit as to why we think something you know went wrong in in uterus or something like that. 
Now we've talked. Yeah, go on. Uh, No, we've talked a little bit about the need for early intervention and what's important to identify children on the spectrum, and also to help parents get get help early on. What about on the other end? Because I've seen many children, they go through high school and the training that they have in terms of vocational or whatever, and and I actually even did a dissertation on that about what happens to these children they they exit school and there's you know what are they doing what's what are their needs and oh, you something remarkable with with Temple very early on that helped that helped to steer in so many different directions okay so well, what is missed well one of the things that helped her was she was interested in uh, cattle equipment there was not a lot of other children who were. You see, part of the problem today is a very tight job market for all children. And you raise a very important point for the manager of a of a service. Now, he might be enormously sympathetic. He might even have a child on the spectrum. But he's not going to deal with this. His other employees are going to. Now, can has he, when he has 50 people who are applying for a job, why why would he take the child that will burden the rest of his staff with something they didn't expect to have to deal with right and so what's the solution i think we have to look at what we used to do see i've been doing a social study of autism which is very old it didn't just happen it i, I went back for 200 years we've we've always had it uh but we were a farming country, and these children got absorbed into the farming tasks, simple tasks. And I think, as I said to you once, we, we say, say about one boy, nah, he don't talk, he milks the cows. <laughs> <laughs> and and he was talking. accepted, and, and he, he did his job, and he, he carried and the community. out a role in the farm. Right. And, and the girls were accepted. They could sew. They could knit. They could spin. They could churn. And these were valuable services. We're not looking at the need for certain, certain services today. We're not uh, noticing. I think you and I talked about this, the fact that, here in New York City, every cleaning establishment has a stitcher. Sometimes they're male, sometimes they're female. You want your skirt or your trousers turned up or let down, depending. I'm very tall, so I always needed somebody who would let down the trousers and, and sew in a false hem. Uh, this, this is a perfect job for somebody on the spectrum. And again, here in New York, we have cobbler shops because we walk a lot. We, we all wear out the soles of our shoes. We wear <laughs> out. We we have to get a new sole put on. These little cobbler shops. You go and there'll be three men working on a cobbler's wheel. One of those could be a boy on the spectrum, and he'd love it. He'd really love it. And there are simple. I, I, I'm looking at the desk I'm sitting at right now. 
which came in units from a place that uh, sells units of furniture, and then they send somebody to fit them in and do the extra carpentry that has to be done to make them fit. The men came, two of them, one an expert, one who was learning. I thought, that's a perfect job. It's a one-on-one job, and there's no time pressure. And yet the beauty of what you're describing, too, is the fact that there is one expert and somebody learning, so that person is sort of shadowing the the expert, so so he or she learns and and becomes comfortable with that particular task or that particular industry. And they're not tasks that require speed. You see, to to, uh, serve at McDonald's, is totally wrong. The the speed is too great, too nerve-wracking for any child on the spectrum or adult on the spectrum. Uh, these The jobs I'm talking about are slow-paced, and they're precision jobs. And, and a lot of our children on the spectrum are very good at precision op- operations of one kind or another, carpentry sewing, stitching on a machine, baking. And, you know, there are places for, if we really pay attention, there are places and there are ways to include these children and these young adults within those industries because, like you said, I mean, I was looking for, for a cobbler in this area. I have two pairs of shoes that I still need somebody to fix, and uh, I have not been able to find one. In, in the, There used to be somebody who was here for, for 35 years, and then he closed up shop. He could have been training somebody on the spectrum. Yes, he could. And, and, and we've let so that go. That also brings right. up another point we're not paying attention to, and that's mirror neurons, the neurons that learn by imitation, which is right at the heart of what you just mentioned, How do we learn to do certain things? We watch somebody else. I defy you to explain to me how we tie our shoes. (laughs) You can't explain it. You say, look, watch me. This is the way you you do it. (laughs) You have to see it. And for some reason, uh, all the books on autism I've been reading, I thought, why are they avoiding talking about these neurons that learn by imitating, because it it is the source of of so much of what we learn, T- particularly the points that you and I've been talking about just now. The the two men who came in to fit this desk I'm sitting at into the space. Well, they had they had tools, and the the guy who knew it said to the other guy, "Okay, we'll measure, and then we'll cut." along that line. Can you cut along that line for me? Yes. And I think this is what we've not explored and I don't know why. And I think And you know, if we did do it, I mean again, we I think many children and many adults would respond so much because you're you learn by example. And you know, it's not just children with autism. I my brain, I don't believe, works whatever, typically. And I sometimes I have a friend who will get frustrated with me because I need to learn experientially. I need to see somebody do something, 
and then I need to be there and do it while somebody's watching me and make sure that I do it right. It may take longer, but that's, you know, I've learned that there are certain ways that I learn best, and I think that by doing that, by, you know, understanding that, that what you're talking about, that um, mirroring, mirror neuron, that children yeah. and adults would learn more quickly and feel less frustrated because you know they're getting it in a in a different way and they're getting it but they, but we're not we're not recognizing that that's what they need see, to learn. Well, you see, this is how Temple learned. She's she, Temple's a very good sewer, and there was one summer that uh, I got her a little job working for a woman who was doing uh, individual work. Uh, that people needed turning up or trousers or letting them down. And Temple worked for her, and this woman paid her handsomely, and she said, you know what? Temple was a real help to me. Mm. And Temple has always been proud of that job. You know, it's so important, too, that, that people feel, like you said, some a sense of pride in what they're doing. And if they're constantly facing so-called failure because they're not getting it right, because they're not getting, like, the help that, you know, in terms of imitation or whatever that they need, no wonder well, again, we have it, people who... Typically, who, uh, just to add to that, Temple told me the other day that she would try to talk a woman working in an animal uh, industry... That who had a a boy on the spectrum, and she said he would be perfect walking among you. Apparently, you have to put somebody on a horse and walk them among the cattle to spot cattle that are in the process of starting to get sick, catch them before right. they really get sick. And she said there are certain characteristics they have. They their head is lower. Their 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 ears flap in a different way. She said. This is a perfect job for your son, this woman, and you can get it because you work here in the factory. She couldn't do it. She just burst into tears. It she didn't want to. Accept, she didn't want to accept she, where I, that I child was. I don't know was. whether she couldn't accept accept it about her child. She couldn't see her child doing that job. And Temple said it, that it seemed to her like a perfect job. And those to me. You know, that brings up another point in terms of acceptance, of parental acceptance, because we were talking about early intervention, and the earlier that a parent like yourself recognizes that something is wrong or something just doesn't seem right in terms of the development, it, they need to address it rather than be in denial. I couldn't agree more. You see... There's a great confusion between total uh, unconditional love and unconditional acceptance. People confuse them. Unconditional love simply means I love my child, I don't care what. Unconditional acceptance, no. It can be indulgence. It can be denial. I think to keep a clear eye on what you're doing is what matters the most. And that is what I've been working on in the webinars I've developed and the website. I feel these, this is basically my website is an informational site. I feel the more we share information, as you and I are sharing right now, 
the more valuable for parents, basically, for teachers, a place for them to go and listen to. Uh, what I've done is the webinars are essentially talks with authorities on autism, like Uta Frith and Tony Atwood. Uh, they come. They can give you. They can talk about what they think is important. I also think it's important to just to have webinars with just the ordinary folks who are good in the field that they work in, but they have a child on the spectrum, so they have immediate, intimate knowledge of the problem. And they bring another perspective in. What I'm after is shared information and shared insight, a web spot site that parents can go to to learn and see what it triggers for them that after they've talked, after they've viewed a website, do they want to go to that person's own website and learn a little more? We we need to reach this point. And this is what you I, know, I think that's so critical. That... Doing. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, I was just going to say, you're essentially doing that. You're disseminating knowledge. And you know, I, I think it's so important to share information because you are, go- especially, and we're going to give people this the website in a moment, because there are people, like you said, working directly with children on the spectrum. There are families. There are there are clinicians. There are experts in the field. Even even more experts about brain research and neural research and and the nature of autism and you're bringing them and I love what you're doing Eustacia you're bringing not only these experts but like you said people who have have direct dealings direct access with people on the spectrum so they're presenting different views different insights and again it's all information that not just parents that professionals also need to know I'm amazed sometimes to see that professionals don't know a lot about autism and there's a level of frustration and impatience because they don't know enough and it and I think it's sad can you tell people and, and, a little and we don't know enough about uh identity you see we're incomplete until we're with somebody else our identity is tied up with with uh, you and I are talking we are making friends. We are learning things about each other. And that completes us in a way we are not complete alone. And what happens to a lot of parents, I see, is they lose a sense of who it is they think they are themselves. It's more than isolation. They're floundering in terms of their own identity. And that's what the name of my book is about when I realized I'd have to hang on to my own identity. The thorn in my pocket was identity. Uh, And it came out of um, an anecdote that Theodore Morrison, who I studied uh, creative writing with at Harvard, uh, he was a great friend of the poet Robert Frost. And I told Mr. Morrison I was nervous about coming back to college later in life. I wasn't sure I could carry it out. And he said that Robert Frost, late in life, took up lecturing. And he told Mr. Morrison that it made him nervous. And he said, I always keep something in my pocket that I can touch while I'm talking. So I will remember who I am. Wow. He said, lately it's been a thorn. 
so that's what that thorn is. And when and Julia Orman played me in the movie, she said, <laughs> you may think it's foolish, but I played every scene. I had a thorn in my pocket so I would remember who it was I was. You know, I think that's so important. This book, I'm holding it right now. It's A Thorn in My Pocket. Temple Grandin's mother tells the family story. It's beautifully written. And it's not just about the family story. It also goes into interviews with people, professionals about autism. But what I want, because we only have a minute or so, I want families, educators, parents to know where this, organization is the how they can get information how they could listen to the webinars that you're that you're doing interviewing people how can people find it well Eustacia? well if that if that that's easy it's the temple grand and eustacia cutler autism fund website www yeah as we've called it the tgec website the temple grand and <laughs> right. eustacia cutler uh and it, it will come up immediately. And you then, uh, what Chris Curry, who's organized this for me and has been my partner in building this website, she has organized each of the interviews. If you bring them up, you see she's got the PowerPoints coming up beside them so that people can look down this list of this index of people and it's getting longer they will there the interviews are there permanently see who it is they want to talk to want to air or want to view i guess that would be the word right. i should be using um, and hit that one and if they want to stop the stop it and take notes as one somebody called in and said how do i want to take notes how do i stop it without making it go all the way back to the beginning well, you can. You can stop it, take your notes, continue. Uh, and, as I say, go to Tony Atwood's website now to see what he what what's there because we need to pool our resources and pool our knowledge. And you are doing such a beautiful job of that. And I'm going to remind people, it's www.templegrandineustaciacutlerautismfund.com. I'll actually promote that a lot today and, and in the rest of the week because I think people need to, again, have access to information and, and not just professionals, as you said, but people with firsthand knowledge. Eustacia, I love what you stand for and your dedication to so much in terms of autism and people understanding more about neural differences and the mirroring, and I thank you so much for your contribution and in all that you're doing and also for taking your time to be on the Power Your Life show today. Well, my pleasure, and thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. Same to you. <laughs> Thanks. So remember what Eustacia Cutler said. It's so important that we recognize that if we know one child with autism, one child on the spectrum, we really only know one child. We we have to recognize that, that every child has many different differences and really 
learn to explore more of the neural nature of autism so that we can help children on the spectrum and their families that may be struggling and may need answers to be able to power their lives and their futures. And I think that's so important, and I'm so dedicated to the cause. Next week, we're shifting gears on Power Your Life Radio, and we're going to look at something that may actually be very important for newscasters. And this is from Kiri Terrell, who is going to talk about positive news and making a difference in people's lives. So tune in next week, July 20th to hear that and also remember that each and every day you make a choice and we talked about that a little bit you make a choice in terms of what you're going to do your actions how you're going to behave choose to empower yourself to take a look at your day and make sure that you're making a difference not just for yourself but for other people thanks so much for being here and if you missed any part of the show We'll promote it. You can go to Blog Talk Radio or my website, drjoannewhite.com, drjoannewhite.com. Have a blessed day wherever you are, and remember that you have the ability and the wherewithal and the choice to empower your life. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to the Power Your Life radio show with host and author, Dr. Joanne White. Listen often and spread the word about the upbeat show to enrich you and grow your life in the direction you desire. Listen again and again and visit DocWhite.org for more information and find out how Dr. Joanne can benefit you. Thank you for sharing your day with us and stay tuned for more exciting guests and events to come.